Hi, my name is Becky, and I am the co-host of In the Elements, and here's a message to get you weather ready. The spring season is here, and we want to prepare you for spring weather threats, which include thunderstorms. When thunder roars, go indoors. Lightning strikes the United States about 25 million times a year, and although most lightning occurs in the summer, people can be struck during any month. Lightning kills an average of 47 people in the United States, and hundreds more are severely injured annually. For more information, please visit the NOAA Weather Ready Nation website at weather.gov WRN. Welcome to In the Elements. I'm Dakota Smith. And I'm Becky DePodwin. On this episode of In the Elements, we're kicking off a three-part series that examines how meteorologists and weather enthusiasts got interested in the weather. There's something truly fascinating about why meteorologists do what they do. There's normally an origin story of sorts and a moment that lamented the power of Mother Nature in a young person's mind. Nearly every weather podcast asks their guests to tell this origin story. I think I got bit by the weather bug uh, in uh, about fifth grade. Second grade. I got caught in a thunderstorm in New Mexico during monsoon season with my dad. And we were outside at a track. I was very scared. And basically, he taught me. My actual event, my trigger event for getting into meteorology was Hurricane Alicia. Uh, so I grew up in Houston, Texas. I uh, did get to see my, the first tornado that I saw in person uh, was in 1998. And it was the day after my little sister was I really was think it has to do when I was about five years old, uh, remembering back. About two, I think my parents said I started to throw a tantrum if I didn't. Since it's National Weather Podcast Month, we figured we'd flip the script and examine hosts of various weather podcasts and why they decided to podcast about the weather. Becky, this is a weather podcast, so let's start here. What sparked your interest in meteorology? So I feel like I'm one of those sort of more rare cases where I honestly don't have a, a story of a really crazy severe weather event, a snowstorm. I just, it, it was sort of always there for me. I remember being in elementary school on the playground and always wanting to get to the highest point on the jungle gym so I could look west because in my mind, all the storms came from the west because <laughs> I lived in Colorado and they usually came over the mountains. But the defining point for what I wanted to focus on in my career came when I was a freshman in college when a tornado hit my hometown of Windsor, Colorado uh, in 2008 and it was a really rare storm. I was it, like noon, it traveled northwest towards the mountains. But anyway, I it, it hit my hometown. I saw these people that I knew, the, the places I had driven, you know, my whole life and grown up and they were destroyed. And I then I heard the stories of how people survived. And it really, it, it, it changed the focus from just being about science to being about people and the people that were impacted by the weather and what I could do to make sure that they had all the right information to be prepared for these kinds of storms in the future. I like that. I mean, a lot of times it's it's like a fascination about the science, but for you, it was a fascination about how it's impacting people. Yeah, that that's that's unique. I I think for me, that came like after I was interested, you know, like I was interested in like the clouds and 
why do we have clouds and why is there frozen things falling from the sky? And now, like, you know, after I, after, I guess in undergrad, I was like, oh, wow, like it, this impacts people a lot. And, you know, that's interesting. Also why we have this podcast too. Yes, definitely. I think we, we have similar uh, mentality when it comes to the communication of weather and wanting people to really understand it. And obviously we're really fascinated with it. So we want to share that fascination. So what about you, Dakota? What, what triggered your, your interest in the weather and sparked your passion for meteorology? So it wasn't a particular event, but kind of a series of events, I feel like. I don't know when the moment happened, but I was always interested in whether I think middle school was when it really began to start. Winter storms were my thing. I grew up in Maryland and we didn't get, you know, we, we didn't live in the mountains or whatever or lake effect snow where we got tons of snow every year. We did get those big East Coast snowstorms, the big nor'easters. And when those happened and if it happened just right, we would get dumped on. And I I actually remember the the storm of 96. I guess I was four. But I'll never forget, I like couldn't, my head barely peeked over the um, the snow because it was so deep just from one storm. And uh, yeah, I, that, that's a really, a really cool memory. I don't remember 93. I don't think we got nearly as much, but I was uh, still a toddler, an infant. But then in high school, like I, I was already, you know, I was I already knew I was going to do meteorology in undergrad. But in high school, we got two giant snowstorms. Uh, the pattern was actually very similar to the pattern we're seeing now in March of 2018, where we just had nor'easter after nor'easter. And at my location, we had two storms within five days of each other that dropped over 20 inches of snow. I believe I actually measured a depth of not 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 a drift, a depth of 50 inches of snow, um, which was just unbelievable. So, you know, that that wasn't really the spark, but that was kind of what did it. Just big, big snowstorms, big ice storms uh, really, really hooked me in. One last thing. I, I think the impact on people actually was the thing that gripped me in, but I didn't know it because I loved how it shut down everything. Like as a kid, I was just like, yes, no school. And me and my dad would always have this tradition where we would go to a breakfast place called the Harvest Inn where all the locals went. Uh, We lived in kind of a sort of country-ish area and there was a lot of characters over there. And we'd go there in the morning and then, because my dad, hmm, I should preface this, my dad was a school teacher. So he uh, he always had off when I had off. Um, So we'd go to the Harvest Inn in the morning and then we'd go walk the dog at a park in the snow. And, oh, I just, I have so many good memories of that. And whenever I go back and it snows, we do that. I get very nostalgic. Sounds like my definition of a perfect day, pretty much. Right. Dog and everything. Good food. Good food, <laughs> dog, snow. I know. What do you for in life? Not much. <laughs> In 1999, Hurricane Floyd formed, churning out in the Atlantic for a few days, inching closer and closer to the United States. Floyd ended up being a fierce storm that took the entire East Coast by storm. At its peak, Floyd was a monster Category 5 hurricane with winds of 155 miles per hour, winds that could demolish nearly anything in its path. Luckily for the United States, Floyd weakened before making landfall with peak winds just over 100 miles per hour. Not only did Floyd bring strong winds to the Carolina coast, but also destructive inland flooding and storm surge. Min, a seven-year-old at the time, was in Savannah, Georgia, where he'll experience something that changed his life. 
So, you know, with Hurricane Floyd um, coming towards the Georgia coast, I obviously was really uh, locked in on, on staying tuned in with the coverage. And, you know, I didn't I don't know if I really understood much at the time or what all we had to potentially lose with a devastating hurricane barreling towards us. But, um, you know, I just remember feeling really giddy about evacuating. It was a very strange, like innocent, I guess, feeling that a normal seven year old you know, boy might think. Um, my parents, I remember, were very nervous about the whole storm and evacuating everything. And uh, when I look back at it, the items that we took were kind of weird. You know, it's not the typical stuff necessarily, but I packed my Beanie Babies and all my toys. My parents packed all their uh, photo albums, and that's pretty much all we we, we took with us to Atlanta. Um, but yeah, you know, we were staying on top of the covers the whole time. And, you know, as parents, not me being a parent, I'm not a parent yet, but I could imagine my mom and dad having the obligation of taking care of their two children and young children at the time. You know, they weren't going to wait until the very last minute to evacuate. And so I think when they issued um, a mandatory evacuation, roughly, I think a day and a half or two days before the storm was forecast to hit was when my parents and my other uh, family members decided to get out of harm's way. So you were on coastal Georgia. That's where you were living and you evacuated to Atlanta. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was living in Savannah at the time. And so it's normally a four hour drive to Atlanta, but it took about nine hours uh, that time around in 1999 to get um, to our uh, capital city away from the danger. Do you remember how the, the evacuation process was? Like, was there crazy traffic? So clearly there was if it took an insane amount of time. Yeah, it was a terrible, I mean, what you said earlier, what, 2.6 million people, the fourth or fifth largest, yeah, fourth largest evacuation in U.S. history. Um, we evacuated from our neighborhood and the traffic was so bad that we were on the interstate and we were next to our next door neighbor the whole entire time on the interstate. Like we were just waving at him, rolling down the window, talking to him. We both left at the same time and ended up being next to each other for hours and hours getting out of the city. Um, and so there were a lot of things learned, lessons learned from that evacuation. Uh, to get out of Savannah, there are two major interstates you can get out of. I-95, that goes up and down the uh, eastern seaboard, and you can go westward on I-16 towards the middle part of the state, and then you connect to a different interstate to get to Atlanta. So for I-16, what they've started instituting after Hurricane Floyd is the whole idea of contraflow. And I, I want to say that Hurricane Floyd really spurred that idea for all interstates in the United States, whether you're in Florida or anywhere along the coast, um, with an interstate moving away from the coast to contraflow, which means that you reverse the traffic so people can't drive towards the danger. All lanes are diverted so that you're leaving the area of impact. And so back then, they didn't have that. So you had a whole side of the interstate going eastbound with nobody on it, and everybody on a two-lane interstate going out. And that's what caused all the traffic issues. Um, so since then, they've allowed us to you know, turn the eastbound lanes westbound. Yeah, I mean, that seems super logical. It's interesting that it took a major event for them to figure that out. Man, I, I wanted to dive like a little deeper into why Floyd kind of had this impact on you. Do you think you could like go back into your like seven-year-old brain and try to remember some of the things you were feeling while you were evacuating, while, while you're on the way back, while you're seeing this coverage, what were some of those things that you were feeling that kind of planted that seed? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if I have an exact answer, but let me try to go back to that surreal brain of mine. Um, you know, it was, it really was just sitting there at, in front of the TV and, and watching this, you know, meteorologist, Pat Prokop at the time, pointing at a, a map and, and watching the hurricane move and move towards our direction. And then, 
I, I didn't really feel scared at all. I don't know that be, feeling fear is one way to get somebody um, sparked on an idea. But for me, it wasn't really fear. It was more of just genuine interest and kind of lackadaisical. I don't know if I was really feeling anything at the time. Um, I knew that we were getting out of school for a few days. You know, I didn't know that it could potentially have been months or years before we went back to school. But I was like, oh, no school for two days. So that was kind of fun. Um, and then just, you know, the evacuation process itself like oh we get to go on a random vacation to atlanta which i don't know if anybody ever says let's go to a vacation to atlanta but for me it was because it was you know a little bit far away um but you know i think when i was in atlanta i was watching the weather channel coverage in a random restaurant we were eating at it's it's weird the things you actually remember right i don't know why i remember that but it was at a a vietnamese restaurant and i was eating some rice or something and uh, (laughs) watching the tv and and watching the coverage unfold and realizing like that the, the the weather guy or the meteorologist that was reporting was standing in a part of town that I completely recognized and seeing the rain and the wind a little bit. Um, it was really fascinating for me to see something. And I think in that moment, having evacuated already and being safe in Atlanta, watching the coverage of my hometown, I think that was when it kind of started hitting me a little bit more of this is actually kind of real. This could potentially be devastating and life-changing for me. And so I think coming back home uh, you know, driving in the car, luckily the ride back home wasn't as bad as the evacuation out of town, um, was talking to friends and class and teachers. And they're all like, wow, like, we're so glad everybody's safe. And I think, you know, at the time coming home and not really seeing too much damage because the storm, you know, went northward, it didn't really sink in as much. But something did trigger. I don't know what exactly that was. But um, since that moment on, I've always had a love for for journalism and and, and meteorology. Yeah, I, I've always wanted to like get to the psychology of it. Yeah, because, you know, so many people have this story and it's like, what what's going on there? Like, I know there's some sort of you're fascinated, you're interested, you don't know what's going on. But there's got to be something there that is kind of like a common thing yeah. in people when it comes to, to, to seeing that interest. I know it happens with other stuff, not just weather. Yeah, Um I'm really I like I'm I'm you're pressing me and I, and I want to give a better answer but I think now I'm going to start thinking about it a little bit more though because I there has to be something right that's like triggered some part of the brain I don't know it may not be totally related but you kind of mentioned it how were you in Greenville when Matthew hit Yeah so it was kind of a double-edged sword too because with Hurricane Floyd it didn't hit Georgia where I was living at the time but it did hit eastern North Carolina and Greenville for Hurricane Matthew it hit coastal Georgia and it hit Eastern North Carolina. And at the time I was still going in graduate school. So I actually drove from Greenville down to Savannah because I was helping to board up my, um, my house and get everything inside and bring everything up to um, higher ground in case of uh, storm surge flooding. Cause we live right on the, the marsh. Um, my parents were actually in transit from Taiwan. They're visiting family members and they were stuck at JFK in New York, not able to get home. And so I figured if, if they can't get home and prepare the house, like nobody would. So I drove six, seven hours from Greenville to prepare my home. And then we got a lot of um, wind damage. There were trees falling everywhere in our neighborhood. And then I wasn't able to go back up to Greenville for graduate school because they shut down the university for a week because they had a bunch of flooding all over town from Hurricane Matthew as well. Um, campus was closed for quite a while. Uh, my apartment complex 
uh, some of the units were flooded with uh, the creek and river, you know, going up way past the flood stage. It was insane. And so for Hurricane Matthew, both places I was living at the time were impacted. And it was just kind of a weird feeling of being stranded and not really knowing like what I was going to do next. Wow, that's that's super nuts. So how did how did both of those events impact you as a meteorologist and as a social scientist? For Hurricane Floyd, I think that was what sparked my seven-year-old brain at the time of, you know, wow, this is really fascinating. Maybe I didn't really understand the meteorological um, components of Hurricane Floyd at the time, but I think that spark really got me interested in, in whether, you know, instead of watching the CBS Evening News every night, I would turn on the Weather Channel and watch that all the time. Um, would look up at the sky and watch the thunderstorms and really something just felt cool about it i don't know it you know maybe it's twister the movie for some people but for me it was an actual um, event and a lot of people too that's uh, a story you hear pretty uh, pretty often um, but floyd i think got me into meteorology as a young uh, young kid and then hurricane matthew that was actually the first hurricane i've ever experienced um in person in real life i think a lot of times we study all these things in meteorology school, but we may not have a chance to actually experience something like that. And not to say that when there's a hurricane and there are evacuations, you shouldn't evacuate. But um, I did stay behind and was able to you know, not only see the weather playing out, but also the aftermath of it playing out too. The emergency management side of how do you deal with a crisis like this? How do you um, deal with the damage? How do you deal with bringing people in to the city after the evacuation order and how do you restore things back to normal? Um, Hurricane Matthew, while it didn't make a direct hit, kind of sideswiped Savannah and caused so much destruction. And to really see the people being impacted and talking to the people who live here, you know, hearing their narratives and their stories, I think that's really important for scientists, meteorologists, social scientists to really take into account and understand and work to understand because these people's experiences are very valuable in trying to learn more about how we can improve this type of process for the future. That's it for this episode of In the Elements. If you'd like to hear more of these episodes, they're in the feed you're listening to now, or you can find them over at theweatherjunkies.com. Huge thanks to Min for coming on the show. If you want to hear more Min, he hosts a weather podcast called Weather Hype. If you want to join Min in telling your story, we're always looking for them. So if you have a story you want to tell, whether you're in your element at work or in the natural elements, send us an email at inthealementspod at gmail.com or give us a tweet at elementspod on Twitter. Tune in to our next episode to listen to more weather origin stories from various weather podcast hosts as part of National Weather Podcast Month. For myself and Becky, thank you for joining us in the elements. Yes, science!